Thanks, Chad. Well, good morning. Didn't know quite what to expect here this morning after the, uh, the letter about the COVID, you know, so I'm glad to see you, that you're here, and I am especially glad to see Kirison. Was that Kirison that came up front? Where are you? There he is. Good. Good to see you back here and your family. That's good. Well, this morning, I want to speak with you for a few minutes about doubt and faith. Doubt and faith, they are often in a state of flux in our lives. They are not usually constant for us, but they ebb and they flow depending on the circumstances in which we find ourselves, right? And we're going to think about doubt and faith from the standpoint of the story of John the Baptist, the one that Chad just shared with us. John is one of the New Testament characters that I have always admired. And Jesus himself said, nobody ever fulfilled his God-given purpose better than John did. He was top of the heap. And yet, at one of the most critical points in his life, he found himself wondering if what he believed about Jesus, what he had given his whole life for, was even true. But I'm getting ahead of the story. Faith and doubt are often found together like two sides of the same coin. There are some who say you can't experience faith apart from doubt. And there's a quote in your bulletin this morning to that effect. If that's true, then to experience great faith, to maintain an unshakable, confident assurance that, uh, and trust in God, that would imply, I think, a severe testing, wouldn't it? And these are exactly the kind of experiences that we dread, at least I do. We just finished singing a great song of faith, and we're going to think about another one in just a few moments that could even be called a dangerous song, or at least a difficult one. Sometimes, when I'm singing a song like one of these, I catch myself wondering if I have the right to sing it. If the words I am singing reflect what's really going on down deep in my heart. I wonder if I would be as faithful as my singing proclaims if my circumstances were different. Some of you know the story behind Horatio Spafford's It Is Well With My Soul. Since he first penned it in 1873, it has become one of the great gospel songs of the Christian church a rock-steady statement of loyalty to God in the face of incredible misfortune. Spafford was a successful and prominent lawyer practicing in Chicago when two calamities struck almost simultaneously. The first was the unexpected death of his only son from scarlet fever in 1871. And as he and his wife were still grieving the loss of their first boy, the great Chicago fire swept through the city. Spafford was heavily invested in real estate and the disaster ruined him financially, just wiped him out. Now you can hardly blame him for feeling the need to get away for a while and that's what he planned to do. He decided to travel to Europe with his wife and remaining four children, all of them daughters. He chose England as his destination because his friend, Dwight Moody was preaching a series there, and he thought it would do him good to hear his friend preach the good news. But at the last moment, he was delayed on business, so he sent his wife 
and daughters on ahead, booking passage for them on the French steamship Villa du Havre. And while in mid-ocean, that wooden steamship on which the Spafford women were traveling was struck by a larger iron ship, and it went down in less than 12 minutes, taking the lives of 226 of the 317 on board. All four of Spafford's daughters, Tanetta, Maggie, Annie, and Bessie, drowned in that sinking. His wife Anna survived and sent the now famous two-word telegram from England, saved alone. Shortly thereafter, as this broken man traveled to comfort his grieving wife, his ship was said to be passing near the spot where his four beautiful girls had died, and Spafford was inspired to pen the words of the song that we just sang. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. I never sing that song without remembering that story. And when I remember, I shudder. I shudder. I wonder if my response under similar circumstances might likely be quite different. And yet, I sing the song. And most of you sang it this morning with me. It's interesting that not only did Spafford suffer these tragedies, but he also endured the shame of his church family because the church he attended believed that so much personal tragedy could only be the result of divine punishment for some sin. Most people today know of him because of the song he wrote, but the greatest work of his life actually came later after he and his wife had moved to Jerusalem and set up an orphanage, serving the people without regard to their religious tradition and thereby gaining the trust of Christians, Muslims, and Jews. And it is said that his work there in that orphanage in Jerusalem played a critical role during and in the aftermath of World War I by relieving great suffering and deprivations of those living near the Eastern Front. So he was a man of great faith, and we sang his song. There's another dangerous song of faith, and it's one most of you know. We have sung it around here a number of times, although we didn't sing it this morning. It was penned 133 years after Spafford's. It, too, has become a favorite of the worshiping Christian church. And Christ followers 133 years from now will probably still be singing it occasionally if time as we understand it lasts as long. Blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be. Blessed be your name. I'm not too afraid of living life in the sunshine and probably you're not either. It's not hard to bless God when the sun's shining, is it? But how about the other stuff that this song mentions? Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering, though I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your name. 
My life has not been marked by undue suffering. Some people have profoundly difficult lives. I have not, thank God, but what would my faith be like if it were to suddenly take such a turn? You give and take away, we sing. You give and take away. You take away? Still my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. If you would have sung these words this morning, would they have bothered you at all? They bother me. Just to sing a song like this seems almost to tempt God, as if I'm saying, okay, God, my faith is strong. I'll never leave you. When down inside, I might be such a traitor. Like Peter, you remember his bold statement, Lord, I will never forsake you. I'm ready to die with you. And four hours later, he denied even knowing Jesus. I get depressed and ungrateful if we have more than one day of rain in a row. I'm a little worried about what's coming over the next, you know, after the next couple of months. Let me tell you, I did not sign up for the complaint-free bracelet last week, all right? Like Horatio Spafford, the, author, the authors of this song, Mike and Beth Redman, also wrote it out of tragic life experience. Some of you know the story. Matt lost both of his fathers. The first one, whom he loved dearly, killed himself, leaving Matt to agonize for years over what part he had in the cause of it. And then his second father was an, abu an abuser. Together, Matt, Matt and Beth lost their first three desperately desired children to miscarriage. Three devastating blows, one after the other. The song, Blessed Be Your Name, came not long after the loss of their third child. I sing these words and I think, how many of my three children would I be able to lose and still sing? How much of my livelihood could I lose? How much of my comfort and still be able to sing, you give and take away, Lord, blessed be your name. I pray I never have to find out. I want to have the kind of faith that allows me to sing that with integrity. The truth, however, is I'm probably more of a doubter. But here's something interesting to think about. We may think about these two songs of Christian faith as, as great songs of faith, and they are. But the truth is they were both born of doubt. Imagine the kind of soul-torturing questions that must have tormented Horatio Spafford on that terrible voyage to meet his devastated wife. His hymn hints at these nagging doubts. He says, And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. Here was a man struggling within his soul because of his inability to see how it all fit together in God's plan. He couldn't figure it out. He had to simply take it on faith that God knew what he was doing. But it wasn't blind faith. It was not without begging for the day when a rational understanding would eventually come, when the unanswerable questions would find resolution. Spafford's faith was not the kind of faith that lets God off the hook, but one that says, God, 
I trust you even in this terrible time, but one day you will have to clear this up. And although I can't know it now, I will want to know it on that day, why it happened, why my girls died and others lived, what reasons you had for not protecting them. I trust you for it now, but I'm longing for the day when my faith will be sight. It's a great song, but it, under, it, it, it acknowledges the underpinnings of doubt. And the same thing happens to us in great or lesser degrees, usually lesser, thankfully. In his book, Worshiping God on the Road Marked with Suffering, Matt Redman shares the catalyst that finally drove him to write about the second song that I talked about. It was the terrible events of 9-1-1, nearly 20 years ago next month, and the doubts it generated, not only in his mind, but in millions of minds. Why did such a thing happen? How did God allow all those innocents to die like that? And the subtle underpinning of doubt comes through again in his lyrics. He writes, my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. I will choose. The presence of a choice implies that there is compelling data leading in a different direction. Data that could support a different conclusion. It is not automatic that he says, blessed be your name. The fact is, Neither one of these songs came from people of perfect faithfulness who had no doubts. But they wrestled with them, just like we do. So we might say that faith is, in one respect, a product of doubt. Philip Yancey is a favorite author of mine. He's written several books on the experience of faith. One of those is called Reaching for the Invisible God. He says that when we try to explore how faith works, we usually sneak in through the back door. In other words, in, we learn best about our own need for faith during its absence. And since God is invisible, times of doubt are guaranteed. Which brings us to the question, how do we deal with it? This is where the story of John, one of the great doubters of the New Testament, comes in. He is commonly known as John the Baptist because of his practice of baptizing people in the Jordan River as a symbol of their repentance or turning away from sin so that they would be ready to meet Jesus. John was the one that God had chosen to introduce Jesus to the world. John baptized people to symbolically acknowledge that their life had changed. The old life of sin was dead and buried. A new life of following God had begun. It's still the reason that we do it today. John took his work very seriously. From the time he was conceived, there was never any doubt as to what his life's work would be. From the day he was named, his life's mission was ever before him. As he grew up, his father would rehearse it to him over and over again. His training as a child, what he ate and didn't eat, what he drank and didn't drink, the games he played, the scrolls he studied, his lifestyle as a teenager and as a young man, everything reinforced and prepared him for his single great mission in life to introduce God's Messiah to the people. He was the opener for God's new kingdom concert. And he knew that to the very core of his being. 
And one thing John did not do was turn a blind eye to sin. Sin separates people from God. And since John's mission was to prepare a people to meet God's Messiah, he knew sin had to be dealt with. Otherwise, it would stand in the way. It would keep people from God. It doesn't keep God from people, but it keeps people from God. You can't dabble in it and still expect to come and get close to God. So John called people to repentance, to turn their back on doing wrong and turn toward God and to commit their lives to following him, living life his way. It didn't matter who you were, didn't matter how important you were, if you tolerated or condoned or practiced sin, John would call you on it. And that, that kind of thing can get you into trouble pretty fast if you tangle with the wrong person. And John tangled with the wrong person. He tangled with King Herod. Herod was living in an openly adulterous relationship with his brother Philip's wife, and John called him out on it. John was an advocate of biblical marriage. Now, when we think of John, it's easy to get the wrong picture in your mind. I sometimes do. It's easy to see him as a pretty black and white, austere kind of guy, stern, uncompromising, kind of rigid even, maybe even a kind of a right-wing fanatic. We generally don't think of him as warm and fuzzy. Not many people say, well, you know, the first person I want to meet when I get to heaven after I see Jesus and after I see my friends is gentle John the Baptist. Nope, he's kind of intimidating. We may even have a mental image of John standing in Herod's courtyard, surrounded by onlookers, dressed in his camel hair coat, hair going in all directions, his staff raised and shaking, and his voice thundering, it's not right for you to have her. But that's probably not how John was. Because the evidence is, he had won the heart of the king. The evidence is, John was relational to the core. King Herod believed John and respected John. In fact, there is some evidence that King Herod had already separated himself from the woman, that he was moving toward faith. Maybe John's problem wasn't so much with the king as it was with the king's woman. Herodias was the abandoned woman, the scorned woman, and it was on account of her that Herod finally put John in prison. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. John is on ice. And remember now, on the day they shackled him in that dungeon, John was absolutely sure and certain of what he had been called to do. He was absolutely sure and certain of who Jesus was. He was the one who had pointed to Jesus and said, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had told his own followers, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. He's the bridegroom, I'm only the best man. You guys need to go and follow that guy. He's the one. But after a while in the prison, something begins to happen to John. Matthew 12, 11 and verse 2 says, When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come? 
Or should we expect someone else? John begins to doubt. His belief, once so airtight, begins to waver. You know, the Bible is full of stories of good people who love God and who should have believed, but who doubted. And in a perverse sort of way, I'm glad the stories are in there because it gives me hope. It reminds me, I'm in good company. Now here's a question. Why did John doubt? Well, verse 2 says, he heard about the things Jesus was doing. So he has information, but some of that information doesn't seem right. He has data that doesn't seem to fit. How did he get that information? Well, verse 2 says he heard it. Who did he hear it from? The guards, maybe? Probably not. Most likely the source is his friends, his own followers who come to see him in jail. Because Herod still respects John, so he allows John's disciples to come and tend his needs. And when they come for a visit, they don't just chit-chat. John wants to know about Jesus because that's who his whole life has been spent for. He wants to know what's happening with Messiah. And so they tell him what Jesus is doing. What kinds of things do you think they told him? Keep in mind now, these guys are John's followers. But John is in jail now and his popularity has taken a huge hit. And meanwhile, Jesus' star is rising fast and Jesus is hugely popular. And Jesus is the one getting all the adulation now and all the attention. And maybe, maybe they don't like John's he must increase, I must decrease philosophy. It's not a popular philosophy. Not then, not now. I mean, imagine... Donald Trump or Nancy Pelosi saying something like that. So it's possible that there's some envy at work in what they report. And they tell John how Jesus hangs around with all the sinners, how he eats with cheats and sellouts, invites tax collectors and extortionists to become his followers, how he seems to even be going kind of easy on adultery, which is exactly why John is in prison it's almost like Jesus is the good cop to John's bad cop. And the more he hears, the more some of it just doesn't seem to fit with the understanding of what God is supposed to be doing. If you go back and you read John's messages, um, his sound bites all had to do with cleaning up corruption. Here's what God is going to do when he comes. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He's going to split the good people off from the bad people, the sinners from the righteous. He's going to put his wheat into his barn and the chaff, he's going to burn that up in a big fire. So you need to get right with God. If you wait, it will be too late. The axe is already at the root of the tree. That's John's message, okay? But that's not what he heard about Jesus. Jesus was not judging sinners. He was socializing with them. Something didn't seem to fit. Now, another question. Were the reports John heard correct? They were. That's exactly what Jesus was doing. And frankly, it was getting Jesus into trouble too, wasn't it? With quite a bit of the folk who were watching and murmuring from the sidelines. So it wasn't wrong information. 
but it was incomplete information. It was incomplete information. So let's think for a moment about where doubt comes from. And there are two things to consider here. First, doubt often comes from the people we listen to. And who do we listen to the most? Our friends. Friends, be careful. Second, doubt may take root because of incorrect information or because of incomplete information or because of contradictory information. In John's case, some of what he heard contradicted what he expected. And in any case, it was incomplete. It wasn't the whole story. As my wife often says to me, you know, there's got to be more to the story, <laughs> right? A woman once asked Bertrand Russell, the world's best-known atheist at the time, what he would say if he turned out to be wrong, if he found himself standing at the pearly gates being questioned by God as to why he didn't believe. And his eyes lit up, and Russell replied in his high, thin voice, why, I should say, God, you gave us insufficient evidence. Now, I personally have a hard time with that. I think, you know, there is an enormous amount of evidence that God exists and that he is good. The fact that there is stuff at all around us points unmistakably to a maker. There is incredible beauty in the world, incredible information packed into DNA, incredible fine-tuning and balance in the way the cosmos works. I, there's more than enough evidence for me that God exists, but a lot of people don't see it that way. And for them, you know, it's not nearly as airtight as it is for me. Because they see so much data that just doesn't seem to fit the creator-based understanding that I have of God. And a lot of people really struggle with that. They do. Because it's contradictory information. In his book, uh, Philip Yancey quotes a novelist by the name of Martin Gardner. And uh, Martin Gardner has one of his characters in his story, who is a college professor, say this. He says, Today's intellectually honest Christian must choose between being a truthful traitor or a loyal liar. In other words, Christianity and science can never be reconciled. If you're going to be intellectually honest with science, you'll have to be a traitor to Christianity. But if you're going to be loyal to Christ, you'll have to be a liar to science. There just isn't any other way. And a lot of people today believe that. But what if it's not either or? What if there's a third category, typified by people like Adam and Abraham and Sarah and Job and Jeremiah and Jonah and Thomas and Martha and Peter and all kinds of characters in the Bible, characters like John the Baptist. What if there's a category that we could call the loyal traitor? People who question God and squirm and doubt, and yet they stick with him in the end, despite their discomfort, and they grow to love him more, even so. One day, Jesus was teaching the people, and he said some things that simultaneously attracted and repelled his followers. You can read about it in the last part of John, the sixth chapter, his teaching on the true bread of heaven. And his disciples asked him a hard question uh, that resonates in the heart of 
all the kinds of people that we might term a loyal traitor. They said, Lord, this is a hard saying. Who can accept it? Whoa, Jesus, stop. What you just said there, it's not making it, making it easy for us to trust you. And one by one, as the words of that teaching settled into their hearts, that crowd of, of, of listeners slouched away until only his small group was left. And then Jesus had a question. He said, you don't want to leave too, do you? And as usual, it's Peter that speaks right up. But what he said was exactly right. He said, Lord, to whom will we go? To whom will we go? Hmm? And sometimes this is how it is for us too. We may not understand it completely. There may even be compelling data that doesn't seem to fit. We may have doubts that we cannot resolve, but we choose to stick with God. We choose God because where else do we go? Right? There is no other reasonable alternative. Non-belief is really not a hopeful alternative, not even a little bit. Now, for John the Baptist, it wasn't, again, lack of evidence. It was contrary evidence abetted by the miserable circumstances of his life because he's in a dungeon now, and if John is anything at all, he is the quintessential mountain man. He is an outdoorsy lover of nature, used to unconfined space, living life in the sunshine, but all that's been taken away from him now, and he languishes in a filthy dungeon. Plus, there may be this question, which may be troubling him, that goes something like this. Jesus, if Jesus, my own cousin, really is who he says he is, and he knows where I am, and he knows how it's killing me, why doesn't he give me some word? Why is he so silent toward me? Pain and loss also breed doubt. When tragedy strikes, when life as we know it takes a sudden turn, when the ship sinks and the kids drown, the natural response is to wonder why. So here's John. He's in prison. He's dedicated his whole life to a mission that seems to be going down the tubes. He's not even sure anymore that he's been introducing the right guy. God is not following through. So John decides to ask Jesus to clear things up. That's a good response, isn't it? Wow. And he sends a couple of his friends to ask Jesus, are you really the one? And sometimes we have questions like that too. Is this really the way? Is this really the church? What if it's not? And again, here's what Yancey has to say. He says, the Bible is a book whose heroes seem to stagger from one daunting crisis of belief to the next. I mean, think of Job, uh, who never doubts that God exists, but certainly he doubts God's character of justice and goodness. His friends react to him with shock and dismay. Stop thinking that way, they say. Shame on you for even having such thoughts. But God holds Job up to those friends as, as a hero of faith. You think of the book of Psalms. By one scholar's count, 70% of the psalms are lament. They are doubt. They are complaint, in other words. Psalmists are going to have to change the bracelet quite a bit. 
Books like Job and Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Lamentations show us beyond doubt that God understands the value of human doubt. Because without doubt, there really can't be faith. Doubt is uncertainty. If everything were certain, there wouldn't be any need for faith. Paul says, faith is being sure of what we hope for. But he also says, a hope that is seen isn't any hope at all. Why does a person hope for what they already have, he says. Yancey likens doubt to a kind of undergirding framework that you eventually might hang belief on. He writes, and I quote him here, Doubt is like the skeleton in the closet of faith, and I know of no better way to treat a skeleton than to bring it into the open and expose it for what it is, not something to hide or fear, but a hard structure on which living tissue of faith may eventually grow. The stories of loyal traders in the Bible also show us something else. Those who confront their doubts often find themselves growing into a faith that transcends their doubts. You think of Job again, right there in the middle of his bitter complaint to God and his failure to understand he, he comes out with that bomb-proof statement that David read for us this morning. I know that my Redeemer lives. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. He doubts and yet he believes. And faith eventually wins. So John sends his friends to ask, are you really the one? And those friends hurry to Jesus with his question. And Jesus doesn't answer them right away. Instead, he says this. He says, tell you what, fellas, stick with me for a few days and watch. And so they do. John's friends spend some time job shadowing the Son of God. And then he calls them together and he says, now go back and tell John what you've seen me do. Open blind eyes, energize withered legs, clean up leprosy, unstop deaf ears, resurrect dead people, preach the good news to the poor. And so they go back to John and they tell him, we saw him give sight to blind folk. We saw him cure leprosy. He even raised dead people from the grave. Yet maybe this isn't what John is expecting. Maybe John just wants a plain yes or no. Of course, there are some things that should tip him off. The Jews knew, for instance, that nobody but God's long-awaited Messiah would be able to open up blind eyes. So if Jesus is doing this, what does it mean? Nobody but God's Messiah can resurrect the dead. So if Jesus is doing this, what does it mean? But it's still not what John expects to hear. And it forces his mental construct of the kingdom of heaven to expand, to stretch. And so he has a choice to make now. Turn toward Jesus or turn away from Jesus. And Jesus anticipates this difficult choice. And so he tells John's friends to pass along one other thing. Tell him, he says, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. In other words, John, don't lose your faith because I'm not exactly who you were expecting. Stick with me. And you will find joy. And I hope that we can hear Jesus say those words to us too. We have to be careful. 
We Seventh-day Adventists have a very highly defined understanding of scripture and theology and 28 fundamental teachings and lots of books with lots of information, and that's good. We're thankful for those things, but we have to be careful. None of us has a perfect understanding. We don't get to define who God is. Blessed is the man or woman who doesn't fall away on account of me, Jesus says. Doubt can turn us away from Jesus or it can turn us toward him. Jesus doesn't say don't have doubts because we're all going to have them. It's just part of living as a finite creature in a contaminated world. But when we have one, don't let it drive you away, he says. Three suggestions for how that can work and then we're finished. Number one, doubt can force us to revise our mental construct. That's what happened to Jesus, to, to John. The kingdom of God began taking on new meaning to him. The church owes a debt to some people have, who, who have been great doubters along the way. For example, there have been times when the church has opposed medicine as being an obstruction to God's will, when it tacitly supported slavery, when it ranked certain races and women as inferior beings. And often it was the doubters that questioned that kind of stuff. And as a result, the church grew in truth. Number two, when we doubt, it helps if we do it with an attitude of humility. In other words, to remember our creaturely status. For example of this, God had the perfect opportunity to address the problem of pain in his speech at the close of the book of Job. And by the way, it's the longest speech that God makes in Scripture anywhere. But God didn't address pain. He avoided it entirely. Instead, he seems to say that human beings don't have competency when it comes to figuring out all the details of why certain things happen. There's a book that's called the Encyclopedia of Ignorance. The author says that uh, whereas most encyclopedias compile uh, things that we, we do know, his book attempts to outline areas of science that we can't explain. Uh, stuff like uh, the riddles of gravitation, questions of cosmology, curved space, human consciousness, that kind of thing. Well, maybe God has a book like that. A compilation of fenced-off knowledge an encyclopedia of theological ignorance that maybe, for very good reasons, we cannot know at the present time. Here's a very practical example of something that might be in such a book. Will babies or young children who die, will they be lost or saved? Will they be lost or saved? There, there's not a lot of hard evidence in the Bible one way or the other. Most theologians have found enough cryptic clues to convince them that God will welcome all children under the age of, count of accountability, whatever that is, into heaven. But the Bible never really says. What if God had made a clear pronouncement somewhere? What if he had said, thus says the Lord God, I will welcome every child under the age of 10 into heaven. Do you know what most exasperated parents would do with their rebellious little nine-year-olds? You know what I would have done with mine? They'd be in heaven. Mm. 
more serious one. How about the, the, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God? Scripture presents it in such a way that it stands in unresolved tension with human freedom of choice. It just does. God's perspective as an all-powerful, all-knowing being who sees all of history at once rather than pieces of it unfolding second by second, that has baffled theologians since, since the beginning, and it will always will. Because we are not like God. And a humble approach acknowledges and worships a God who transcends our limitations. People say, well, that's just a cop-out. No, it's not. It's simply reality. God really is quite a bit smarter than we are. And there's certainly no shame in admitting that. Actually, it's wise. And there's another hymn that we sing around here sometimes that carries this theme. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, by light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. It's like the poster we used to have hanging in our house when our kids were young. It said, there are two fundamental laws of the universe. Number one, there is a God. Number two, you are not him. And finally, there's a third thing that we can do with doubt to keep it from turning septic in our lives. We can bring it to the church, which seems a little bit counterintuitive, doesn't it? But not if the church is functioning well. We can bring our doubt to a trusted group of fellow travelers. There was one of the 12 companions of Jesus who developed such a reputation for doubting that it actually became attached to his name. Anybody remember who that was? It was Thomas. Does anybody remember what it was that Thomas just couldn't believe? It was that Jesus had come back from the dead. I mean, you think about that. That's kind of a major doubt, right? Kind of a core teaching for a Christian. I mean, we're way beyond clean and unclean meats or alcohol or stuff like that. I mean, this is like the sine qua non of any doctrinal statement. And Thomas refuses to sign. And yet, where do you find him in those early days? He's hanging out with the rest of them, with the, with the rest of the disciples. Even though he wouldn't believe them, he was hanging with them. He was still welcome in that little community of faith, even though he's saying, I can't believe that. It couldn't have happened. You guys are all just nuts. They didn't throw him out because it was a community of grace. And, and, don't forget this, it was in that community of grace that Jesus finally appeared to Thomas and strengthened his faith. I mean, the worst kind of doubter is a lonely doubter. Yancey writes, and if you take nothing else from today's message at all, take this. He says, I quote, the church at its best prepares a safe and secure space that belief may one day fill. Isn't that good? Imagine a church that has the grace to embrace doubters, that welcomes them and loves them and bears with them patiently. Imagine a church that's a safe place for folk to say, sorry, I just don't see that yet. Imagine a church that doesn't encourage doubt, but that welcomes it, providing a safe and secure space that belief might one day fill. An incubator 
for future faith. And we all need that kind of place, that kind of place. That's what Doubting Thomas had. A community of believers that allowed him to develop future faith. And you know where Thomas eventually went? Do you remember? He went to the end of the world with the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus for lost people. He went to India and he gave his life so that that subcontinent might receive Christ. My prayer is that God would build us into that kind of people here. That he would make this place that kind of place where we can come together with the things that perplex us and with our tendencies to disbelieve and learn to sing the songs of faith with integrity.